Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you thank you sweet holy spirit thank you for the testimonies father that will come forth in jesus name amen and amen praise god hallelujah well we continue our, our teaching um, on the holy spirit um, and for today's message if you wanted a title uh, the title would be of course it's it's a teaching on the Holy Spirit, and it's a, it's a series on the Holy Spirit. But the title for today would be, What is this you have done? What is this you have done? I want to take you back to the beginning. Um, uh, we, in the beginning, we read about the creation of man. In Genesis, the first chapter, uh, verses 26 to 28, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, what God thought he did. So verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, God said, Let us. The, the us, of course, we all understand, was the Trinity. This was the Trinity in cancel, the Trinity speaking. Let us together. And every one of us, that, that, that tells us that the intention, and it, and the intention was carried out that all of us would be involved in this process of creating man. It wasn't a God the Father thing to the exclusion of the Son or the exclusion of the Spirit. Let us, all of us together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's make man in our image. Let's make man like, like us, uh, to have a, a, a likeness to us in our image and our likeness, to have our, our character, our, our personality, our traits. And then the Bible says they actually did that, but they, the Bible makes clear they made them male and female, but all in the image of God. And then God blessed them. And when you go on to Genesis, the second chapter, the Bible actually breaks down how that happened. What was the process by which man and woman were made? Because in, in Genesis, the first chapter, the Bible says God said, let's do it. And the Bible says God did it. But how did God do it? In Genesis, the second chapter, it tells us how God did it. Verse 7 of Genesis, the second chapter, tells us, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So what the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, we see how God did it in Genesis 2. He took dust from the ground, 
and he formed it into this body, but it was dead even though it looked like you and I look, certainly, certainly the guys, because this was the man that he was forming. The woman, he hadn't, he hadn't formed the woman yet. And then he, then the Bible says, put his breath. The Bible says he breathed into this thing that had no life. And then the Bible says it became a living being. It had life. And it had life because he put his breath in it. He just created this thing and whew, put his breath in it and it suddenly came alive. It was a living thing. And it's that word breath that, 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 that should catch your attention. It's the Hebrew word ruach. Yeah. It's, that's, when you talk about that word breath, it's the Hebrew word ruach. But it's the Greek word because I'm sure you, you know very clearly the Bible was written in Hebrew and in Greek. The New Testament is in Greek. So that word breath is the Greek word that's translated spirit. It's the Latin word that's trans, translated spiritus. So what is the Bible saying? It's saying that God formed man from the dust and then put his breath, put his Ruach, the Greek word is pneuma, which means spirit. Put his pneuma, the Latin word is spiritus. Put his spiritus. In English, we translate it spirit. Put his spirit into man. And man became a living being. That tells me that man is a living being because of the spirit of God in him. It's the Spirit of God in a man that makes a man a living being. And he didn't repeat this process again. So when he wanted to create the woman, because he came to the conclusion that the man needed help. When God gives you a wife, guys, it's a clear sign that God looked at you and thought you can't do it yourself. Some guys think they can. He looked at you, God himself, and said, you need help. And so he brings the woman to the man to help her. And when he brings the woman, he doesn't repeat this process. He takes from the man, the side of the man, a rib, and he fashions that into a woman. And the Bible records that process for us in verses 21 and 22. So the breath is still in the man. He takes from the man. The breath is still in what he takes. The spirit is in it. And he fashions that into a woman. And then the Bible records for us the amazing relationship with this creation of God that has his spirit in him with God. And it's important for you to understand this, what I'm about to say, because that's a picture of how it's supposed to be. The Bible says in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, Eden 
and there he put the man he had formed. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. God trusted him. God literally said to him, take over Eden. I trust you to look after it. I trust you to be responsible with what I have given you. You know, the whole of last week, the world was talking about the irresponsibility of man that, that, that has literally brought the world to a point where the world will overheat because of global warming. And that irresponsibility is because of what happened in Genesis 3. Because our original parents, because of how they had the Spirit of God in them, were so responsible for their environment, for what God gave them, that God said, I can trust you with it. He said to the man, take care of it, tend it, guard it, cultivate it. And the reason was because the man was one with God. God could trust him. His spirit was in him. The man was yielded to the spirit of God. And so God knew that the man would be responsible for his environment, responsible for whatever he was given. He would cultivate whatever he was given, guard it, tend it. That's why your prayer should always be that your daughter marries a man who has the spirit of God in him. Because you see, that if that man has the Spirit of God and is submitted to the Spirit of God, he will cultivate your daughter, bring out the best in her, help her to become who she's supposed to be. But when he doesn't have the Spirit of God in him, you better go into fasting and praying because he will work for the other side to bring harm to her. So God said, I can trust you. You've got my Spirit in you. you you're yielded to my Spirit, submitted. You're one with my Spirit. And you know, the Bible highlights that amazing relationship that our parents had with God. In 19, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, Out of the ground, the, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable. Now, this is amazing. God had a major assignment. He couldn't get, he did, he, God didn't want this assignment messed up. We've got to name all these animals I've created. Major assignment. God said, I can trust Adam to do it. And it was in, it's instructive. That whatever Adam called it, God said, that's what I was actually thinking. Because there was such a unison between Adam and God. They were one. He was so connected to the Spirit of God that he didn't even, there was no disconnect, you know. As a result of sin, we are now trying to Learn how to hear the Holy Spirit. How, how many, how many are, are trying to hear the Holy Spirit? In, you're in here. And, and, uh, yeah. But you know, with Adam, he didn't have to try to hear the Holy Spirit. 
He just heard it. He thought to himself, there was such, a, such an intimacy that as God thought it, Adam received it. There was no disconnect. And so he would see a big animal that kind of lumbered along and had a trunk with tusks, two tusks. And Adam would think, hmm, that looks like an elephant. And God would say, that's what I was thinking. That's, that's what I wanted it to be called. It's an elephant. It was seamless. He didn't have to fast. He didn't have to go to an altar in a church. He didn't have to say, oh God, 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 speak to me, speak to me. Can I hear you? No. It was so tight that it was a seamless flow. God thought it, Adam received it. If you transpose that into what could be, think about your life. When you get that level of intimacy and oneness, it's just a constant flow of communication from God to you. You actually do it before you realize because there's a constant flow of communication from God to you. The depth of that relationship. The relationship was such that God couldn't keep away from, 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 from our parents. In the cool of the evening, he would come down to hang out with them. And of course, I'm sure you know that it wasn't God the Father who was coming. The Bible gives you an impression that there was something, someone physical who came. But you know, you and I know it wasn't God the Father who would come. Because you, of course you understand from scriptures that no, one's, no one has seen God the Father. In fact, the way the Bible puts it, it just, just tells it all. John 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So of course we understand that that must have been pre-incarnate Christ. Again, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit walking to, together. The Father wanted to fellowship with them. The, the Son went on his behalf, pre-incarnate Christ. The Spirit was in the man. What an amazing time it was for humanity. But of course, Satan strikes. And the Bible in Genesis, the third chapter, verses 1 to 6, records Satan's strike. And as I read those scriptures the early hours of this morning, I felt a shiver run down my spine. I actually physically shuddered. Because it was as if the Spirit of God was letting me see the enormity of what Satan did. Here was this paradise, this this lovely situation, man and God in perfect harmony, 
Man and God working together exactly as God intended. That was his plan when he said in heaven, let us make man in our image. It was for this kind of intimacy, this kind of fellowship. And to make him enjoy it even more, he gave man an outpost from the headquarters. He gave man a place called earth, an Eden a place that everyone, Christian or non-Christian, agrees was paradise. Everything worked there. And he put man there. And he would leave his heavenly abode and come down to the playground that he had given his special child or children and just hang with them. But of course, there was this seething, slithering, slimy enemy who had a grouse against God because at one time, he had a privileged position in heaven too. He led the worship in heaven. He was so specially wired for worship that he couldn't help himself but worship his body was intricately woven with the most complex musical instruments. And when he let out any sound, it was worship. But one day, sin entered his mind, rebellion. He thought, why can't I be like God? And the Bible says, he was so convincing that he actually persuaded one-third of the angels to follow the wrong sound. And the result was a war in heaven, the Bible tells us. And it wasn't a war, by the way, between God and Satan. Please don't bring God down to that level. It was a war between archangels. When God saw the rebellion, and this allows you to understand how God just cannot tolerate sin. If not for Jesus Christ, we would all be dead. It is the finished work of Calvary that is holding judgment of, the judgment of sin in abeyance. And so God says to Michael, get rid of this guy. And so Michael goes with two-thirds of the angels to war with one-third of the angels who have followed Lucifer. And he's thrown out of heaven. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, you don't have to be prophetic. If he's thrown out of heaven, how many reckon that he must be somewhere around here? Because he's thrown out. When you throw you out, they can't throw you up and you stay up. They threw him down. And so, of course, he's in Eden. Or around Eden. And suddenly got into Eden. But listen to this church. He was there. But as long as our parents were one with God. He was not relevant. So all this focus on the devil. The Satan and what he does. Is him playing a trick on us. To make us think that he is the focus. He's not the focus. The focus is our unison, our oneness with God. 
that makes him not relevant because we are where our parents were. As long as they were walking with God, talking with God, intimate with God, as long as they were loving God, worshiping God, as long as they were receiving from God, he was roaming around, slithering all over the place, but not relevant. The challenge came when they started to talk to him. So he slides up, slithers up to them and says to the woman, Did God really say? Did God really say this? And isn't that the same thing we hear today? As his spirit tries to contradict the word of God. Could God really mean that? And she responds, which is where the problem starts. This is what God says. And he ups the game. He can't mean that you would really die. What's he, what's he saying to her? What kind of God wants to kill anybody he loves? On the contrary, he's stopping you from experiencing something good. That's the lie he's sold to most of the world. Break that boundary and you will experience something good. Do that and it will make you feel better. And when she looks at it, it's like something locks. She takes it. It's instructive that nothing happened then because the heavenly order ha had provided protection. Guys, that's what you're there to do for your wife. Protect her spiritually. She's praying more than you, fasting more than you, seeking God more than you. That's a disorder. She's protecting you. That's a temporary disorder. But when she gave it to the man and he ate, rebellion entered the world. And listen to what God says. Genesis 3 verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? That's why I got the title of the message. What have you done? You have wrecked all this. You've destroyed paradise. You've messed up this relationship. You've spoiled things. You have allowed evil to come in. You have allowed sin to take its place. What is this that you have done? My spirit will have to leave. I can't stay in your body any longer. It's corrupt. There's rebellion and sin in your body. And if I leave, you will have to die. Because it was my spirit that gave you life. And now my spirit cannot dwell with sin. My spirit has to leave. And so you are dead. 
Someone might say, but that didn't happen. Adam lived to 930-odd years or so. Yes, but Adam was spiritually dead. He was a walking corpse. When the Spirit of God is not there, the person is dead. Dead in a Rolls Royce. Dead in a private jet. Dead lying on a bed. Dead walking to a good job. Dead. And isn't it an irony that people who are alive want to be like people who are dead? And listen to grace. When God saw this, God said, they've wrecked the plan. And now, in spite of what we had done to God, oh Lord, God was already thinking about us. How can I get this plan back on track? So the first thing he said is, Get them out of here and put some cherubim to guard the gate because if in this sinful, corrupt state they eat of the tree of life, they will never die but will remain alive, corrupt, and in sin. So you know the Bible records that for you in verses 22 to 24. He sends them out of the garden, the Bible tells us. He drives them out and places, places cherubim at the, east of the gar- at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God is, God is just, I read this this morning. I thought, God, why do you love us so much? How many know he could have just left us? You rebelled? That's it. I create another world and another group of people. But God said, I love them too much. So, Quickly, and if you read that scripture, it's interesting. He starts talking, but then he realizes we've got to act quickly. He starts, the sentence ends in mid, mid-sentence. He, he says, lest he, lest he put his hand and also take the tree of life and eat, the, and eat and live forever. Therefore, so in mid-sentence, God is talking, if, if we don't do something, these people are going to eat this tree. And he thinks, no, 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 we have to do it now. And so he sends the cherubim and puts a flaming sword and says, they must not eat of the tree of life because if they do, they will live forever in that sinful, corrupt state. Because he had a plan in his mind already. Because he sees the end from the beginning. It didn't catch him awares that our parents ate us out of our inheritance. He had a plan with the second Adam to bring us back into our inheritance. And that plan is wrapped up in Jesus. And there isn't too much time to talk about this part of it. But that's why Jesus came. So two main reasons Jesus came. Let's try and wrap, wrap, try and get this as quickly as we can. Number one, he came to correct our memories that had been bastardized by sin and corruption for thousands of years. So we had forgotten what it was like to live in unison with God, to be one with God. We couldn't explain it. So Jesus thought, I will go and model it for them. 
That's why he didn't have to be here for too long. He was here for 33 years and a bit. Three of those years actively. And what was he doing actively? He was modeling for you and I that this kind of life I'm living is within your reach. It's my original intention that this is how we should live, man and God in this kind of harmony. The Spirit of God, Jesus, the Son of God, submitted to the Spirit of God so that you and I could see an example of what it is like to live submitted to the Spirit of God. So we study the Gospels. So we're saying this is possible. We can live this kind of life. That's why he came both as the divine but also as man because if he was only the divine, we would say then this is God so God can do anything. But he was very much man so that he could show you and I that this is how you can live and so that he could erase what sin had put in our minds and corrupted our minds and made us forget and made us not feel that it is out, feel that it is out of our reach by showing us you can live like this. Every one of us can live how Christ lived. Because that's how our original parents lived. So he says in John 10 verse 30, all this happens because the Father and I are one. We are one. What is he saying? You should be one with us. That's what it's all about, that you're one with us. Yes, in 21st century London, 21st century Africa, 21st century in America, yes, 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 but still one with God. Walking in tandem with God. Jesus said, this is how it looks like. So when you read the Gospels, you're looking at a picture of what your life could be like. And the second thing he came to do, <laughs> oh Lord, was to clean up the bodies so that God could put his spirit back in us. That blew my mind. That God, you always had a plan. And so he says, my spirit can't stay in these bodies. It's corrupt. Sinful. Funny thoughts. Crazy words. Abominable actions. Hearts that are desperately wicked. And my spirit that left can't go back. And as long as my spirit doesn't go back, they are dead. Acquiring all the money, but dead. Building more houses, but dead. Struggling to pay a mortgage, but dead. Dead people walking, up, walking into the tube station. Dead people coming out of the tube station. Dead people sitting at desks. When you go out today, you look at people in a different way. As you look around, you're just thinking, you're dead. You don't know you're dead. You're dead. You go to a gym. They seem active in the gym. All dead if they don't have the spirit in them. And God says, but I, I, I don't want them to, to die. I want what I had with them. So Jesus says, I'll, I'll go. And he comes. He pays the price. He buys us back, ransomed. He washes our bodies clean in the blood of Jesus. And he says to God, now, 
you can go back. And so what does God say? He says to himself, in the expression of the Spirit, I'm going back. And so he has come back to where your parents were, Bola. That's where you are. You can live the kind of life they live because he's back in you. He's back in you. He's back in you. He's back in you. That's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Paul says, don't you understand what has happened? You're not like all the other people. No. You've been bought with the precious price of his blood. You've been cleansed and purified for a purpose. That the spirit of God might come back to its residence. Paul says, don't you understand that? The Passion Translation says, don't you realize that together you have become God's inner sanctuary and that the Spirit of God makes his permanent home in you? Now, if someone desecrates God's inner sanctuary, God will desecrate him. For God's inner sanctuary is holy, and that's exactly who you are. So I end on this note. God's primary purpose in sending Jesus to die for us was not to take us to heaven. <laughs> wasn't to take us to heaven. Of course, heaven is on the journey. But if God wanted us in heaven, how many know that he should not have bothered to create the earth and put us there? He should have just created us and taken us to heaven to be with him. Why bother to leave us here to be tempted by Satan? You're God. You can do every, anything you want. So there's no need for all this. Just create us and pack all of us to heaven. And we'll be in heaven. So that wasn't God's primary purpose. The beginning always tells you what his purpose was. He wanted to create something for us and give it to us and enjoy the same way you give something to your child and you get some reflected pleasure from how your child deals with the thing. Does anybody understand what I'm saying? It's the same way he gave the earth to us and enjoyed watching us do what he did in heaven Express who he is in heaven here on earth. If he wanted us in heaven, then he won't come down to see us. He'll take us away. And if he wanted you solely in heaven, if that was just the aim, the end game, then surely once you give your life to Christ and you're, you're, you're guaranteed going to heaven, why do you bother to leave? I think it's more economical and safer that you give your life and you die. You come and answer an altar call and you just die. No need for Satan to tempt you, nothing. Just die. 
Because at that point, you are guaranteed that you're going to heaven, if heaven was the end game. And that, the answer to that puzzle, why does he put his spirit back in you and not take you immediately? Oh God, when I got this revelation that the reason that doesn't happen is that the awesome privilege of being invited to work with God to make sure more people respond to the call of His Spirit so that He can rescue more of His children from death to life. He extends the privilege to you of being a part of that great and awesome work. It puts into perspective the meaning of life. There's nothing else to life. Please, can you hear that? There's not, nothing else to life. It's a lie of Satan that life is accumulating more cars. What a, what a stupid and futile sense of life. More houses. I mean, the stupidity of life. You find somebody who's 80-something, he wants to build another house. You are crazy. You are going sooner than later. You're in the departure lounge. Just waiting for the flight to be called. What do you want another house for? You can't even climb the stairs properly. Can you see the madness of this thing? Another car? Some more money in a bank? Suddenly the meaning of life becomes clear. God, I'm here to work with you. That so many more of my brothers and sisters... Don't end up in a place that you have prepared for Satan. But your spirit comes back to them. That's why I'm here. Everything I do is towards that. If you know who you are. So the beginning tells us that thank God for heaven. And we're all going there. But that was not God's original intention. In the sense that, of course, God prepared it from before time because he knew we're going to sin. But what God wants is to come to us, not for us to go to him. So I end on this note. I end on this note. The end game makes obvious the end. John gets a vision. In Revelations 21, verses 1 to 5. <laughs> I read this to you as I end. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And when he's talking about heaven, he's not talking about the throne room of God, where God is. No, no, no. That one does not change in the same way God does not change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The heaven of heavens, as it is called. But I'm sure you know that there are three heavens because, of course, Paul says, I was caught up into the heavens. And the Bible, the psalmist constantly says, when I look at the heavens, what is the psalmist talking about? He's talking about the firmament, the skies. So when John says, I saw a new heaven, he wasn't talking about God's home. He was talking about the skies. I saw a new firmament, a new sky being created. 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the reason God had to get rid of it was that the corruption did not just sit in man, it sat in the earth. The Bible says that even the earth is groaning and crying out because of corruption and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's waiting for us. And so God says, I need to wipe it away. This old heavens and the old earth. And then there was no need for the sea. Then John says, then I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What was happening? God still wanted to do what he wanted to do. Which is, come and be with you in what he has given you. The enemy struck. His spirit left. But he had a plan in Jesus for his spirit to come back. His spirit came back. But the place is pretty bad. There's still evil around. It's corrupt. So he says to us, can you work hard to make sure no one goes to that place that was designed for Satan called hell. Work hard. Preach the gospel. Share it with your friends. Incidentally, we're praying for salvation of loved ones and salvation of souls tonight at 7.30. Share the gospel. Work hard. Don't just ignore the colleague at work. No, work hard. Support the kingdom. Give. That's what tithes and offering are about. That's what supporting parachurch ministries are about. Pray. That's what intercession is about. Do all these things. That's, that's the meaning of our lives. And you're doing it so that, so that the brother or sister does not end up where they are not supposed to end up. And then he says, when I decide you've finished, my spirit is in you. So your guaranteed passage to heaven. But John makes us understand that God still wants what he wanted. So John says, after we've gone to heaven and we've sang and we've danced and we've celebrated, it's not a holding place. John says, I was in a vision and I saw a new heaven and a new earth come down. He said it was so beautiful. It was like the bride of Christ. And I heard God say, I'm going to live with them and be with them. Not in heaven, but on the new earth. Just puts meaning to life. And it makes you appreciate the Spirit of God. Because that's what guarantees you not just heaven, 
but the new earth. Can someone say amen? amen. Give God a clap offering. So we want to thank God. We don't have much time, but we want to thank God. It's Thanksgiving Sunday. So this morning, I felt an overwhelming sense of gratitude to the Trinity. I thought, God the Father, you're orchestrating this whole thing. I thought, God the Son, you came and died for me. I thought, God the Holy Spirit, you came back into my, my life as the temple. And you're the seal of my redemption that assures me that I am going to heaven and I am going to be on this new earth. How many feel that gratitude? Seriously, do you? Seriously? Can we, can we thank God for a few minutes? Let's just thank God. Go on, if you feel that gratitude, why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? Go on, let's just thank God. Let's thank God. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. May God bless your thanksgiving offering. May this be a thanksgiving offering that comes from revelation as to God's love for you.